This morning's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. As you all know, we are going through our sermon series, Hold Fast, which the line comes up in this passage. Uh, and um, our, uh, our, our sermon series through Hebrews. And we settled on this for a few uh, different reasons. Uh, primarily uh, because we um, are are going through a, a, a massive and quick cultural shift and change around us. And things are changing uh, every um, day, every week almost it seems, um, whereas used to it would be a few years or maybe a decade or so we'd see some cultural shift and change. But now the pace at which things are changing is so much quicker and it brings up a lot of questions about how we as Christians should act and live maybe no longer being the center of uh, society and culture that we had enjoyed for quite a while. And now what does it mean for us to be on the sidelines, um, kind of looking in, outsiders, outcasts, if you will? What would it mean for us to continue to love this place, this world, where we have been called, where we live, um, to be in the world but not of the world, all of these things? What does that mean? I think it also means what and, and who is Jesus? What is his role? What does it mean now? Is it different? Does it change things? I'm not so sure that it does, but I think it leads to new questions that arise in this as well. And here we find ourselves at kind of the transition point uh, in the book of Hebrews. So far we have seen that the author has pointed out that Jesus is better than angels, because he's the Son of God. This is a designation that Jesus has. 
Jesus is better than Moses because he's not only an apostle, he's not only, um, but he is also a pioneer of our faith. And he has gone out before his people through death into resurrection, and he offers us rest, a rest that Moses could not offer his people as well. And now we're getting to the heart of the author's argument. He is, yes, the Son of God. He is the pioneer of our faith, and he is also a priest. He's a better priest. He's the perfect high priest. This is an incredibly thick um, passage. I might have a hair in my mouth. This is going to... Okay. Not as long a delay as I thought. Okay. Good. Okay. <laughs> uh, incredibly thick passage. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of explanation that kind of has to take place this morning. Um, and what he is doing in our passage this morning is giving us a preview of a lot of things to come that he's going to talk about, of what it means that Jesus is high priest. So he's kind of giving us a table of contents. So there might be some things that I don't fully explain this morning, or it seems like I go over them very quickly, um, but we will get to them. So it's kind of a preview, kind of lots of foreshadowing uh, at this point. The question is, what are priests? What are high priests? How was Jesus a high priest? And what does that mean for us? How is Jesus our high priest? So what are high priests? How is Jesus a high priest? And how is Jesus our high priest? What are high priests? We're going to look at this in a little bit different order. We're going to start um, in the middle of our passage in chapter 5, verses 1 through verse 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. High priests were those designated among the priesthood in ancient Israel. And even into Jesus' day, and they were the ones, they were the, the head priests, if you will. They were chosen from among the priests and designated. They were called by God. They were, they were prayed for. They're, they uh, had a, a laying on of hands in that designation that they, um, uh, they had, not just as a priest, but as a high priest. And they were acted, appointed to act on behalf of men Towards God, and this happened very specifically. The high priest had the honor, duty, um, fearful obligation of once a year going into the Holy of Holies, the place where it was thought of, um, and the place of God's physical dwelling uh, on earth. And he would go into the tabernacle when Israel was in the wilderness, when the temple was built. He went into the Holy of Holies, uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence was designated here on earth. And he would offer sacrifices for the atonement of sins of his as well as the people. It was such a fearful thing that uh, the other priest would tie a rope around the high priest's uh, foot in case he died in the presence of God. They could pull him back out if he made a mistake. It was a very uh, both honoring, reverent, fearful thing to go and do. And so it was him representing the people to God. He was also 
the representative of God to the people, both to the priests and the people around him. He dealt gently with wayward and ignorant people because he too was wayward and ignorant. He has weaknesses, as they said. He was sinful, and so he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins, even though the ritual that he would go through to be able to enter the Holy of Holies was a full-on, a multi-day kind of affair. He was called, called by God. He was designated just as Aaron was. This was a long Levitical legacy that was distinguished among the people of God for this role. So the role of priests was twofold. It was to approach God on behalf of the people, to gather what they bring, their sacrifices, their offerings, their prayers, their symbols of repentance, their cares, their deepest needs, and to present these to the very presence of God. But also the priest's faces towards humanity on behalf of God, representing God's holy presence from among people. Now, you can think of this as Moses. We talked about him a little bit um, last week and a couple weeks where God would go, or Moses would go up on the mountain to meet with God, to, to speak to God, um, and would bring back down uh, oracles, the Ten Commandments, other uh, designations of how the people of God should now act as the people of God delivered from slavery. But he also went to God on several occasions and said, please don't destroy this people. Uh, you brought them out. What would the rest of the world say if you killed them after you brought them out of slavery in Egypt. So Moses both faced towards God and towards the people. This is a long um, uh, establishment, a legacy, if you will, a priesthood, um, managing the relationship between Israel and Yahweh through sacrifices, through cleanliness codes, through approaching God. And it was this intermediary between humanity and the divine. There's always been a need for priests in every society, in every culture, in the history of humanity. Whether they're medicine men, whether they're shamans, whether they're visionaries or cult leaders, we've always had this designation of priests. They mediate and they maintain, if you will, the equilibrium between the the human and the divine. More than that, they really help us navigate life. They provide sustenance and survival and well-being. They help us understand what that means. They form special relationships uh, with people who heal us, who advocate for us, who stand alongside us, who empathize with that. We don't use the word priest as much, except in a few denominations, a few situations uh, this day. We don't think of people as priests. We don't call them that anymore. Most of the time we call them like life coaches or counselors or therapists or pastors or yogis or physical trainers or doctors. They help us understand what we need in this world to be able to navigate it. We look to all these people to guide us in our life, to give us direction, to give us advice, to give us wisdom. And they're good. They're helpful. These aren't bad things. But they ultimately fail. They fall short because they too need it themselves. I had a friend who um, uh, I was telling him how I preached. Preached? Is that the past tense? Preached on rest last week. Protched? Prot. Prot. Okay, thank you. I knew knew you would know. Thank you. Okay. Um, How uh, last week the sermon was on uh, rest. And uh, he said, Well, you got to practice what you preach. How are you resting? And I was like, Man, don't ask me that question. Like, 
I don't know how I rest. Like, I don't. Like, uh, I need this sermon, as well as last week's, as much as we need it together. Um, And we can't offer each other what we don't have ourselves. Um, We are temporary. We are imperfect. Um, We usually have to look to pick and choose from other people's lives to emulate, and we do that quite a bit. I was uh, we listened to Dave Grohl's memoir in the in the car on the way to Kansas City and back this week, and he talks about Kurt Cobain and how wonderfully talented he was, how much impact he had on his life. But he talks about the brokenness that he had as well. As much as um, he was catapulted because of his talent, because of his gifting, because of his ability to speak to the culture of the day uh, into fame, he couldn't handle that himself. And so he used heroin, he used pills, he numbed himself. He did all sorts of things. He attempted suicide multiple times and eventually... um, uh, succeeded in that as well. He was broken. He was not perfect. I got in trouble one time for uh, explaining how horrible of a human Hemingway is. Uh, a great writer, really, really talented, uh, has written some great books, and yet um, had an incredibly broken life. Um, regular adultery, was an alcoholic through and through, um, and yet we lift him up as his writing was quite amazing. The rest of his life, we don't really look at, but what he did in the writing thing, in the writing uh, area. Our theologians, um, pastors, we're not immune from this either. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was a rabid anti-Semite. Horribly, horribly anti-Semite. Jonathan Edwards uh, has been lifted up and that we're rediscovering parts of his life uh, that we don't really love. Um, he sa- is said that he spent 13 hours a day in his study. It's helpful. It's easy to be able to do that when you um, own other people to do the work for you. Not only that, what's, what does his family life look like? If he's spending 13 hours in a study, and he was a brilliant mind, came up with some amazing things, but... How was he loving his kids? What did that look like? How was his wife loved? Even my beloved Eugene Peterson uh, was not a perfect man by any stretch of the means. In uh, the biography that when Collier wrote on his life, um, he lamented, Eugene himself lamented the fact that he needed uh, uh, more whiskey than he desired to be able to relax in the evenings. His son Eric tells a story of he, they were over at his house, he was retired and the phone rang in the middle of dinner, and he got up, and he answered it, and it was just someone randomly calling, and Eric said, what are you doing, Dad? Why are you answering the phone? We're having dinner together. And he said, well, it could have been a pastoral call. He was never not on. He didn't set aside time, his vocation for his family. We do the same thing with parents. We do the same thing with mentors. We do the same thing with spouses their kids, for all those people in our lives that we love to emulate, to be able to look to. They serve as high priests for us, but they are imperfect. They don't have it all together. They're good, probably good in a lot of ways, but there's someone better. There's someone eternal. Jesus as high priest. Verses five, chapter 5, verses 5 through 10 The author goes on to say, So also Christ did not exalt himself 
to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It says The author says that Jesus didn't exalt himself, but God exalted him. He raised him up. And not by men, but by God himself. So well, already we're starting to see a little different appointment that's taking place uh, versus the high priests that were there. They, they were called by God, but they were appointed and chosen from among men. Here, God is appointing Jesus to this position. And he does so when he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Not that he had birthed him out necessarily, but this is the language of Psalm 2. This is the language that, Je- that God the Father spoke over Jesus the Son at his baptism in Matthew 2. Today you are my son. I love you. Listen to him, he says. And he says the same thing in the transfiguration in Matthew 17 when his glory shines forth through Jesus himself. And then the author says he's a priest forever. So he's not temporary. He doesn't die, but he's one that lives on forever. In the order of Melchizedek, this is where this comes. This quotation comes from Psalm 110. This is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, and it's one that has a lot, a lot of stuff going on. But mainly, the question is, who is Melchizedek? Well, so if you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings, um, which I just assume everyone is, um, you know that there is a lot of other history written. Uh, behind Lord of the Rings, and there are a lot of other books that um, that Tolkien's son Christopher published for him, uh, taking his writings, and this is kind of digging deep into the annals of um, who God is and some things that just aren't fully explained. We have a bare account of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, and that this is a different Levitical, this is a different priestly line from the Levitical priestly line. It's one that's better. He kind of appears out of nowhere, and then he disappears right away again. So in Genesis 14, we have this uh, story of Abram or Abraham. Uh, he, he is fighting against some other kings that are in the same valley as him. His nephew gets captured by him. He goes and rounds up some men, and they go and fight and uh, rescue Lot from these other kings and defeat them. And in doing so, Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, it says, he was a priest of the Lord, the God, Yahweh, God Most High, comes and blesses him. He brings out bread and wine. He prays over Abraham. He says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram then gives him a tenth, a tithe, of his possessions and pledges allegiance fully to Melchizedek's God. This is the same God who has called Abram to leave his family. It's before the covenant that takes place that God, Yahweh God, makes with Abram. But here he is lifting his hands up to Melchizedek's God. And this is all we really know. This is the information that we are given. 
is that Melchizedek was a king in Salem. Um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, um, that this is where the future site of Jerusalem is as well. Salem, Jerusalem, Yahweh's peace. Um, and then he goes back. He's, he's a priest and a king. And then he disappears again. This is the line, separate from that, which was established through Moses and Aaron. Different line than the priestly line. One that is better. One that is eternal. In his earthly life, Jesus was a priest when he offered up prayers. He prayed for people regularly. Um, he prayed for his disciples. He prayed before he uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross as well. And, he, and they were heard. This is the same verb that is there of the priest's sacrifices, that Jesus' prayers were offered up just as the priest's sacrifices were offered up. And he learned obedience through suffering. He fully submitted to God's will, which resulted in suffering. He experienced the fullness of human existence. He didn't separate himself, even though he was God's son, from the pain and suffering that takes place in this world, but fully submitted himself. And in doing so, was made perfect, becoming the source of eternal salvation. Again, not just temporary. It wasn't a sacrifice that had to happen over and over again. This made perfect is the verb that means to come to completion. It means the job is done. That which was needed to be uh, an intermediary, to be a priest, to fully represent humanity to God and fully represent God to humanity was made through Jesus on the cross. He fulfilled the role of the priest by his appointment by God and representing the people to God just as all the other priests did. But he does so eternally. And he offers salvation for all who obey him. This only means what it meant for Jesus is that we submit our lives to God's will so that we can know what it means to live in the fullness of his life that he has for us. One commentator says, Jesus' experience was not designated simply to acquaint him with the human situation, but to prepare him for the climactic act of self-sacrifice with its magnificent results. Have you ever been overqualified for a job? I have not. <laughs> I've heard of this. <laughs> you apply and they sit down for the interview and they're like, you know, you're really overqualified for this. This is not something I've heard. Have you guys heard that? Have you heard that? I would expect Allie has heard that <laughs> of the people in the room. You've said that to me. Good. Okay. So this has never happened to me. I think it, it seems like a, a little league, uh, like a MLB player, a little bit going to the little leagues and being like, I'm going to be your designated hitter. Um, it would be <laughs> uh, not any of the Rockies, but um, <laughs> I just thought of that. Uh, but maybe someone else. Um, we had a uh, so. Michael's coach uh, has coached before. He's coaching kind of the, the all-star team for the Denver Southeast Baseball. Um, and I volunteered, like I've done a couple coaching things. I, my baseball knowledge is enthusiastic at best. Uh, we had another coach who was like, I can throw the ball back and forth uh, with the kids, you know, that kind of a thing. About halfway through the season, one of the just outstanding kids on the team who was pitching and just like crushing balls 
um, and like a new Babe Ruth almost. We find out his dad was a high school baseball coach and has coached now MLB players. And we're like, dude, you're like sandbagging us. Like, what are you doing over here? Like, you need to get in on this whole thing we're doing. You need to be coaching with us and probably instead of us. Um, and that is a little bit of what it looks like for Jesus stepping into this role of priest. He's overqualified. He goes far beyond just the mere designation of what a high priest was and what he did, but he became the sacrifice himself, offering himself up and fulfilling the job times and times over, eternally, forever, not just temporarily, not just momentarily, but forever. And he says, let's pattern our lives after Jesus. Let's submit ourselves to him. Let's be obedient for him, to him. Because he is the only one who can handle the full emulation of his life. Not that we will be Jesus, but that we could become like him in our lives, laying down our lives for others, knowing his life, knowing the goodness that he offers, knowing the grace that he offers, knowing when to be able to give a soft word and when to be able to give a hard word, when to be able to comfort and when to be able to push on and encourage and exhort those around him. It is, as the author wrote in the section right before this, letting his word, letting his life penetrate ours to divide joint and marrow, our soul and our spirit, to expose the thoughts and intentions of our hearts so that we can begin to see how our thoughts and intentions both line up with the life that Jesus has for us, as well as where we could hope and pray that they would line up as well. What does this mean for us? What does it mean that Jesus is the great high priest? It means that Jesus is our high priest, that we have possession of his, that we can cling to him. That verse, that beginning section, verse uh, chapter 4, verses 14 and on, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of, uh, to help in the time of need. I just love that he says, we have, we possess. He is ours. He is our Lord. He is our high priest when we hold fast to confession. That confession is that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is who he says he is, that we're not going back and leaning on angels, that we're not leaning on the on merely the teachings of Moses, but that we are looking at what Jesus has done as being our sacrifice for us as the Son of God. And he's passed through the heavens. He's made a way. He transcends excuse me, all others. And yet he submits himself to our humanity. Our high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted as we are, as we will be, as we have been, yet in every respect is without sin. He embraced the fullness, the reality of humanity, and yet he is still the spotless sacrificial lamb. 
Herein lies, I think, the challenge and the promise of this section. Let us have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find help in the time of need. This in and of itself, I think, is a prayer for us. I think the challenge is having confidence, having confidence that when we draw near or that we can draw near and that grace and mercy is going to follow us, the confidence isn't in ourselves and what we have done. We're the ones in need. We're the ones that are laid open before him. The thoughts and intentions of our hearts are exposed to his word. Even our best deeds before God are like filthy rags. Our confidence lies in the fact that Jesus, as the Son of God, as the perfect spotless Lamb, has been both the high priest to offer the sacrifice and been the sacrifice for us. Our confidence lies in Jesus being made perfect in His completed work. And yet, we are to approach His throne, to dare to approach a throne without being invited would mean imminent death in any culture. Most of, our, most of us probably just don't even see ourselves worthy of approaching God's throne. And we aren't. We're in need. But we're in need of grace. And I think that's the promise. This throne is a throne of grace. It's the very place where God's presence from which he dispenses his grace. It is coming to him fully knowing that it is him that we need. Not the gifts that he gives us, but him. And when we do so, we receive his grace and mercy over and over and over again in our lives. Grace upon grace, just as we need it. Another commentator said, The more desperate their situation is before the all-seeing eye of God, the more wonderful is His provision for their needs. Um, In high school, I went on a lot of mission trips um, for one reason or another. I think it was what we did in the 90s. And to raise money to be able to um, go on these mission trips... Uh, we were instructed to sell shares. So for $15, you could go, you could buy shares in my mission trip experience, and then that would buy you a ticket to the dinner and um, kind of um, testimony time and what we did after ba- afterwards so you could come back. And so I would go around, and I this was like, I don't, I, apparently I was a little entrepreneur, but I would go around, and I would sell shares. And I would just ask everybody. I'd go up to, uh, looking back, I went up to some of the more affluent people in our affluent church and asked them to buy shares. And when they said, oh, I already bought a few, I said, well, why don't you buy a few more? Um, just over, like sharing, like selling the shares. Say we had to share, sell, goodness, sell like 50 shares. They were like 15 bucks a piece or something like that. I would sell like 150. And I would sell so many shares that I would pay for other people to go on these mission trips. So I made up for that. I don't know how I did it. There was no special thing that I did. I never assumed that anyone would say no to me. And I would, I guess, argue with them that they wouldn't say no to me. But what I did was I just asked. I went to them and I asked. I think this is the call. A prayer is just asking. I think the biggest reason we don't pray, one of them perhaps, is that we lack confidence in our asking, that we assume a no, 
And we assume that God doesn't want to give us good things like grace and mercy and love. The beautiful thing about Jesus as our high priest is that he will provide all the things that we need. He gives us grace and mercy in our time of need. Just ask. Jesus tells parable after parable of just asking. A neighbor who asks for bread at midnight, a persistent widow who wears down a corrupt judge, a tax collector who knows his only hope is in God's mercy. Just ask. I know a lot of what we're going through in our lives individually for each of you, as well as what we are going through as the people of God, as a table. We need to just ask. To ask that God would give us grace and mercy in the time of need. I need to hear this just as much as you do. I think here's where the rubber meets the road. The priest's job was to represent the people to God and God's presence to the people. And First Peter, the author Peter, writes that you are a royal priesthood who is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our job is to be priests for this world. We as a church represent people to God and God's presence to the world And we do so by offering up prayers and supplications just as Jesus did. The sacrifice has been made. It is our time, our opportunity, our job to pray for the needs of this world, to dispense his justice and mercy, to seek shalom in our neighborhoods, to sacrifice our needs for the needs of those loved ones around us, to model the grace and mercy that we have received through Jesus Christ as our great high priest to those nearest and dearest to us, all knowing that we are following in the footsteps of Jesus, that he is the great pioneer that he is the Son of God who has come down to us so that we may know of God's love and mercy and grace. This week we went to uh, uh, Kansas City. We originally were going to co-opt a visit to my mother-in-law as well as go see Dude Perfect um, at a show there. They usually drive through or tour through Denver. We've been gone the last couple summers and we said, well, we'll go to Kansas City. We planned this trip back in December. Um, if you're not familiar with Dude Perfect, there are YouTubers um, who started out doing trick shots and other um, really spectacular uh, things uh, on YouTube. They put these videos up. They started when they were in college, and they just blew up. And they had to make a choice whether they were going to go all in or not. Saw that the, the documentaries on YouTube, you can go watch it. It's great. Um, they're really entertaining. It's great. We wake up and we sit and we watch Saturday mornings when they have put out a new video and we watch it as a family. It's good, clean fun. Um, it's a lot of trick shots. It's a lot of fun items. It's some gross items. It's, um, it's funny and it's ridiculous. It's kind of um, the best description of it for me, as a kid who grew up in church, is it's glorified 90s youth ministry kind of stuff. And a lot of these guys actually had to make the choice of whether they um, were going to go into youth ministry or not. That was a plan for a few of them. 
and they're traveling around the U.S., and they're selling out arenas that seat 20,000 people of kids from Joshua's three years old to um, there was a 16-year-old kid there as well. I met him. He was up on stage, and he happened to be in our hotel as well. He missed his soccer shot, um, but nice kid. Um, so they're capturing the imaginations of all kids um, everywhere of all ages. And at the end of the, sh- the, the show, they said, hey, our faith is very important to us. We want to tell you about it. We're going to give you a couple minutes if you want to leave, if you want to go and you don't want to hear about it. But we're going to come back out on stage and we're just going to, we're going to share about who Jesus is to us. They, a few people left, but most of the people stayed. And they said, hey, you know, our name is Dude Perfect but we'll be the first ones to tell you we're far from perfect. We are in need of God's grace every day in our lives, and that grace comes through Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to all the, all the fame, all the glory, all the, all the views and likes, if you will, pales in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We want to pray for you guys today. So they prayed, very simple, very easy. Um, but I'm sitting there going like, my kids are like hearing this from heroes of theirs, of people who they want to emulate. Michael has a YouTube channel. He wants to have a million views. He has like four subscribers, and he's super jazzed about that right now. But he's hearing that this, what, what they have achieved is not the fullness of what life is. The fullness of life comes in and through Jesus Christ. They are acting as priests, not presenting themselves as perfect, but pointing others towards Jesus, the one who is the perfect great high priest, who both offered and was a sacrifice for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have sent your son, Jesus Uh, to be the intermediary between us, to represent you to us and us to you, that you show yourself merciful and gracious in our time of need, and you make way to uh, offer sacrifice for sins so that we may have the confidence to approach you in our lives. May our hearts be caught up in you. May we come and ask you in our time of need. And may you hear us. May you answer our prayers so that we may be able to be priests in this place, in this world where you have put us. Give us your grace upon grace. We need it, Lord. Uh, We long to see uh, your mercy poured out in this place. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.